To the second coming of Jesus. Isn't that exciting? Think about it. One week closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So until he shows up, we will maintain, right? We will be faithful and we will serve him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to look at Mary and Elizabeth this morning and uh, the interview that they have. And then we're going to go on and look at Mary's song of praise known as the Magnificat. That's the very song that Victoria just sang in worship. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 39. If you were Mary and the angel had just announced to you that you would become pregnant by the power of God, a miraculous event that you would give birth to the Son of God, after that announcement, do you think that you would have a need to talk to somebody who would understand? (laughs) Would that be a possibility? I mean, you've got this incredible news that the angel has just announced to you. You would be bursting, right? Chances are your neighbors wouldn't understand. Chances are Joseph wouldn't understand. And indeed, he doesn't understand. He's going to divorce her after he finds out. Your parents probably wouldn't understand. So you would probably have a need to get with somebody and talk with somebody and just share all that's in your heart, all that the angel had said. Now, Gabriel, when he announced this to Mary, we read that before, he also told Mary that her relative Elizabeth, who was well along in years and who had been barren, is in her sixth month herself. What better person to talk to than someone else who has experienced the miraculous working of God in their life? So where do you think Mary's going to go? She's going to beat it quickly to Elizabeth's house. Now there are some lessons here for us, and I want to point these things out to you as we look at this interview. She is going to see Elizabeth. Because it's Elizabeth who would understand. It's Elizabeth who she could talk to and who could share her great joy. Because Elizabeth also was someone who had been miraculously blessed. Now I want you to notice this. In verse 39, at that time, in other words, after the angel left, Mary is conceived. At that time, Mary got ready and she hurried Notice that. Underline that word. She hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Now she hurried. She was excited. How many hurried to get ready to come to church this morning? How many hurried here? It didn't break the speed limit, but you hurried. Why do we hurry? We hurry because there's a great joy, a great expectation, something wonderful to be shared. And we hurry to share these things. You hurry to fellowship. You hurry to mini church. You hurry to participate with others who also have benefited from God's grace in their life. Isn't that true? So you can understand something of Mary's excitement and enthusiasm to hurry and get to Elizabeth so that they can share mutually the things that God has done. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Elizabeth is a godly woman. We've already, Luke's already described her that way. She's a woman who loves the Lord, has serves Him in every way, faithful, supports her husband, and so forth. But now she's filled with the Holy Spirit. The reason she's filled with the Holy Spirit is that she is going to prophesy to Mary. She is going to pronounce a blessing on Mary that would last for all generations. And Mary will acknowledge that in her own song of praise to God. You cannot prophesy, you cannot speak forth 
God's blessings, God's words, except that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we see that Elizabeth is now filled with the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, the Holy Spirit still does these things, you know. Okay? Lest anybody lead you to think that he does not. He still fills his people. He still works through his people. He still empowers his people. Prophecy is still a gift that God gives to the church. And so she is going to prophesy. She, in a loud voice, exclaims. Notice it's not a quiet voice. She doesn't want to disturb anybody. A loud voice. She wants everybody to hear this. Exclaims. There's a note of astonishment to what she's going to say. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord. This is interesting. Now you have to understand Mary doesn't or Elizabeth doesn't have a clue that Mary's pregnant. Remember Mary is this tantamount to what we would call a junior high kid. 12 to 14 years old. A little girl. And she has no clue that Mary is pregnant. Mary's not even married yet. Elizabeth probably hasn't seen her in some time. When Mary greets Elizabeth, there's no news given in the text that she's announcing, hey, I'm pregnant. And she doesn't give her any of the details. The details come through the Spirit. The Spirit of God gives her insights that she could gain no other place. And she calls, in effect, the child that Mary will give birth to, her Lord. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Because she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the person who believes God. And so Elizabeth pronounces a blessing. I want you to notice also something in this interaction between Elizabeth and Mary. If Elizabeth were not the godly woman that she was, if Elizabeth were not filled with the Holy Spirit... What do you suppose would be the normal human reaction and or response to the good news that Mary is going to give birth to Jesus? Think now. Before you answer, think. When somebody else is blessed. Jealousy. jealousy, Envy. There is no hint of jealousy, no hint of envy at all in Elizabeth's Words to Mary. Rather, in fact, she joyfully and she wholeheartedly acknowledges that Mary is the recipient of an honor infinitely greater than that honor she has received. True? Now, that's not always the case, is it? If you read the letters that the Apostle Paul and Peter and John write to the churches, uh, there's always a caution there uh, to guard against jealousy. Jealousy and envy have no place in the church. They have no place in the church. And the question we want to ask ourselves, given this example, are we jealous when others are blessed by God, or do we rejoice with them as Elizabeth rejoices with Mary? Is jealousy a part of our life? Do we look and we say, Come on, God. I mean, Elizabeth doesn't say, God, I'm older and I've served you faithfully for years and years and years. I'm much more qualified. Would that not make sense? Sure. Had she served God for years? Yes. Remember, it it was the hope of every Jewish family every Jewish household, every Jewish husband and wife, it was their great hope that they would be the parents of the Messiah. Every household in Israel, that was their hope. They knew the Messiah would be born. They knew the the Messiah would be 
a person from God to save Israel. And it was their hope that maybe they would be the parents. The great tragedy for Zechariah and Elizabeth, remember, was that they were advanced in age and they had no children. They were barren. So that effectively excluded them from that great hope. That's, that only increased the tragedy of their barrenness. It wasn't just they couldn't have children. There was no hope for them to be the parents of the Messiah. And so now here comes Mary, this insignificant young maiden from Nazareth. There was a saying about Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And here she comes along and she's, a, she's in effect going to be the mother of the Messiah. And Elizabeth does not say God should be me. No, but she very joyfully and very wholeheartedly blesses Mary, rejoices with her in the gift that God is going to bring through her. And that's the way it ought to be in the church, isn't it? If you read chapter 12 of Romans, and if you take roots with me, the fourth week we do chapter 12, chapter 12 gives you insight into those things that are characteristic of a transformed life. If you become a Christian and God is transforming your life, then, then chapter 12, verses 3 to the end, are those things that are characteristic of that transformed life. One of those things is that we rejoice with those who rejoice. One of the things of a transformed life, a life that is more and more and more revealing Jesus Christ to the world, is that that life is not envious, that life is not a jealous life. That when you see someone over here being blessed, you go, wow, that's great. God, oh, that's exciting. Let me rejoice with you. And you don't walk away grumbling. You don't walk away feeling, well, come on, God. I mean, you know, you've given me this over here and they've really blessed these people. Why don't you bless me as much as you bless them? When in fact, God says, I've given you a portion. Now be faithful with the portion I've given you. And if you're faithful with that, I can trust you with more. Had not... Certainly, Zechariah and Elizabeth had been, been faithful with that, that God had entrusted into their care. Sure, they had. And God blessed them greatly, didn't he? Because he, she would give birth to John the Baptist, who would be like Elijah, and who would be the forerunner, the one who prepares the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. So there's no hint of jealousy, and this is marvelous, and it's a significant, I think, lesson for us in the church. Uh, that we'd be filled with the Spirit of God, that we'd be undergoing this process of transformation, and uh, that we'd be generous and gracious with one another. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to I move on to this other theme that I put in your notes. It's, I, I've entitled it The Paradox of Blessedness. There is a paradox to being blessed. What I'm telling you is that to be chosen by God so often means at one and the same time two things. A crown of joy and a cross of sorrow. Remember a couple of weeks ago we, we looked at Gabriel's words to Mary. Greetings. You have been favored by God. Now when we think of the word favor, we think, oh gosh, good things, right? Blessings. Blessings automatically always mean Nothing but wonderful, good, happy times. That's a very shallow view of blessing. That's a very shallow view of what it means to be favored by God. For we, we took a quick overview of Mary's life to find out what does it mean to be favored by God. It means that there's going to be a significant measure of suffering too that goes along with this great, plef, this great uh, privilege and blessing. And so I want to reiterate that uh, this morning quickly with you as we talk of this paradox of blessedness. Several times Elizabeth says, blessed, blessed, blessed. You are blessed, Mary. The piercing truth is that God does not choose a person for their own ease, their own comfort, their own selfish joy, but rather he chooses a person for a task 
that will take their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength to bring about. God chooses a person to use that person. When you are blessed of God, that means God has chosen you. Now he's chosen you for something awesome, something significant, something wonderful. Do we have that understanding in mind? All right. But when he chooses you for some tremendous task, you got to know, and I think most of us have an understanding, that there is a cost to that also. It's going to take a toll on our life. Far too many people, knowing that there is something going to be required of them, they shy away from receiving the blessing of God because of the cross and thereby missing the joy. Missing the joy. I think of lots of examples, lots of opportunities, lots of offices of ministry, even in our own church. I think of our many church pastors, men and women who God taps, God calls into ministry. He chooses them to serve the congregation in shepherding a part of the congregation. And an interesting thing about serving God is that he lets you serve in your own strength until you come to the place where you have no more strength. He lets you serve and serve and serve with your own resources until you have finally exhausted your own resources. And if you're involved in any kind of formal or informal ministry, this is very, very important to understand. Because it's only at the place where you cry out, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm at the end of my limit. But stay committed because it's at that point where God says, all right, now, finally, you've exhausted your resources. Now I will demonstrate my power through you. That's how God works. And, and he can't demonstrate his power ahead of time because we won't allow him. We're still fleshy. We still think, this is my ministry. I can do this. God says, okay. Okay. And you go about doing your ministry. Now your motives, your intentions, your heart, everything may be right. But something that we lose sight of is the fact that we really are doing this ministry in our own strength. And it's only when we exhaust our own resources then that we begin to know the resources of God brought to bear. I've been recruiting all weekend for our parking ministry. I recruited all last weekend for our parking ministry to help you guys at this service find a place to park. All the rest of the congregations I've been recruiting, I've been saying, we need help for our 1045 people to help them find places to park. Because the 1045 service is one of our largest services, along with Friday night. We need to help those people find a place to park. And all last week I recruited, and guess how many recruits I got? Two. Zero. So I'm recruiting all this weekend. In fact, Marie Villano is back there uh, to make sure I do recruit. <laughs> Marie's in the wheelchair. I always tell her to straighten up, but she won't straighten up yet. But just think with me. I believe even there are probably some people here in this congregation this morning that God has already called you out for ministry, even a parking ministry. But for you, your thinking is, oh, not me. I don't want to go out there and do that. And even if you do, you go out in your own strength, your own resources, standing in the rain, pouring down on you, trying to find people, places for people to park. People say things to you that ought not to be said to you. Yeah, that happens. I mean, Christians are still people. You know, you're running late, you can't find a place to park, and you sneak into a, uh, an unlawful parking place, and all of a sudden one of our little parking monitors comes up and says, Oh, you can't park there. And you say, Oh, thank you very much. God bless you. 
That's not always what happens. <laughs> and so as a parking monitor, you may take some measure of abuse. Standing in the rain, all alone with your little handheld walkie-talkie. Talking to other parking ministers. And the thought comes to you, why am I doing this? Why am I taking this? I could be in that nice warm auditorium. I could be fellowshipping. I could be hearing Zach preach. <laughs> Why am I doing it? For the kingdom. And, and you, you, you'll have to come to the end of your own resources. You have to come to the point where you just are so tempted to quit. But you won't quit. And it's at that point that you begin to know God's resources come to bear. Everything is like that in the kingdom of God. You see, when you're blessed of God, when you've found favor with God, that means that He's chosen you, and He's chosen you to do something. And something significant in His scheme of things. He doesn't just choose you to keep you out of hell. He didn't just choose you because you're cute. He chooses you because he has a plan and purpose for your life that fits into the context of his plan and purpose for this world. And it's very, very important. And it's a privilege. It's a blessing. But along with that, there's the flip side of the coin that there is going to be a measure of difficulty and sorrow and struggle to that blessing. See, if you understand that going in, if you know that going in and you know God's resources will come to bear, then it's much easier for you to engage the call. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Makes sense to me. Helps me to remember that. And so there's a paradox to this idea of being blessed. And it's important for us to remember that. Now, Mary moves uh, after Elizabeth's blessing. She begins now to praise the Lord. And she praises God for the kind of salvation that will be worked through the one that she will give birth to. Jesus comes to bring a salvation. A salvation for all men that is wonderful. That is unlike anything human beings could ever, ever conceive of themselves. And so she begins to praise him for this salvation. The salvation that many, many people would not welcome. In Jesus' day, even in our own day, there are lots and lots of people who do not feel the need to be saved. For they have trusted in their position, they've trusted in their power, they've trusted in their wealth or some other external entity that gives them a measure of safety, a measure of security, which says, in effect, I don't need Jesus. I'm okay. I've got it all together. I'm a self-made man. I don't need God. When, in fact, they do. But Mary, seeing what God is doing, having a vision for what God is doing, begins to praise him. And the very first thing she praises him for is her own salvation. Read her song with me. My soul glorifies the Lord. Now remember, this comes on the heels of Elizabeth saying, Blessed are you, Mary. And Mary's response is, Oh, my soul glorifies the Lord. She doesn't glorify in herself. She glorifies in the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now that phrase, God my Savior, is vital to understand because there is a teaching in a major segment of Christendom today that says that Mary was without sin, that she was conceived immaculately. It's called the doctrine of the immaculate conception. That is categorically denied here by what she says, the words out of her own lips. The thinking behind that doctrine is in order for Mary to give birth to the Son of God, she herself would have to be without sin. No, not so. She acknowledges right here in this passage that she herself is in need of a Savior. Hence, she herself is a sinner. 
And so she praises God for her own salvation. When you and I praise God in your own personal quiet time, your own devotional time, one of the first things that you need to come out comes out of your mouth in terms of praising Him is say, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. God, if there were nothing else, if you gave me no other thing, if you blessed me in no other way, you've already blessed me with the greatest blessing. You've saved me. We do not know. I do not have the words to convey. My mind cannot conceptualize that which he has saved us from. The words eternal damnation don't quite do it. Eternal suffering doesn't quite do it. The horrors of hell are unimaginable to you and I. We shut them out of our minds. We don't even want to think about them. We don't even want to conceptualize them because they are so terrible. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Next, she praises him for choosing her. She goes on and says, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. In the eyes of the world, Mary wasn't much. Junior high, a kid from Nazareth. Rather insignificant. She neither had power, position, rank, Wealth, she had none of it. She was a simple inhabitant of Nazareth with no fame. No one knew her. She came out of the hill country. She was a hillbilly. <laughs> Just a barefoot hillbilly girl. Country girl. That's all she was. A little country girl. Totally insignificant in the eyes of the world. The Bible teaches that God is not partial. God shows no partiality. In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, God is impartial. That is, he is not influenced. He is not influenced by a person's position, by a person's rank, by a person's wealth. He's not influenced by those things of this world that we are influenced by. But rather, in granting his favor, God looks upon the heart of a person, does he not? Isaiah says that God seeks a humble and contrite heart. If you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, Paul is addressing some problems in the Corinthian church. And one of those problems was that they were, these people were striving for position, striving for recognition, striving for saying, well, I was baptized by so-and-so, and I was a disciple of so-and-so. And, you know, the same thing goes on today in the church. You know, I'm a disciple of, of John Wimber, or I'm a disciple of Chuck Smith, or some great pastor. Aren't you glad that you don't have a great pastor that you're a disciple of? <laughs> Someone who's obscure or not well-known. Years ago, shopping with me. People go, oh, aren't you that guy on TV? <laughs> but Paul, Paul tells the Corinthians, he said, listen, you need to know something. God uses the weak things, the humble things, the insignificant things of this world. And he uses them to shame the wise and the mighty. What are some of the humble things that God used? Do you remember Aaron's rod back in Exodus? Just a stick. Did God use that stick in a powerful way? Absolutely. To part the Red Sea. <laughs> he says, hold that stick out over the Red Sea, Moses. Watch what I'll do. Do you remember the little teeny cloud that, he, that Elijah sent his servant out to see on the horizon? The little cloud, the scriptures say, that was the size of a man's fist that broke the drought in Israel? Little things. God uses that which we look at and say, oh, that's no big deal. That's just a bitty little cloud. That's not going to help. 
you remember in the New Testament? Jesus took some water, simple old plain water, and made the best wine you could ever have. He took some little kid. They brought some little kid to him one day, and the kid had his little bitty lunch, a couple of fishes and some loaves. Jesus doesn't say, oh, man, I can't do anything with this. Come on, guys. Give me something big to work with. No, Jesus said, oh, this will fit just fine. He takes those fish and loaves. He multiplies them. He can take that which is little, that which is insignificant, and he can make it much. And he fed the multitudes. He fed thousands of people. He can take your life and my life, that which is, in our estimation, in the estimation of the world, insignificant. And he can make much out of it. He can take our brokenness and our pain and our fears and our anxieties and our frustrations, our sinfulness. And he can miraculously transform it and make it something beautiful. The Apostle Paul says in that great verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that God works all things for our good. Why? Because we love him and have been called according to his purpose. She thanks him for choosing her. For taking into account her humble state. She wasn't a seminary graduate. She didn't have a lot of theological training. She just had a heart for God. See, God can take someone like that. God can work with them. Unless you think that you have to get real qualified for God to use you, the, the very thought that God could do something great through you ought to be real, ought to be exciting. That ought to be your hope. And at that point, you, you just be available to him, just as Mary was available. Lord, I don't know how you can use me, but I'm available. Open my eyes. Show me. And let him do it. Participate with him, as Mary does. She praises him for using her. The humble things. Now from her thankfulness and her praise to him for what he has done for her, Mary turns now to contemplating God himself. And she dwells now on three things. See, when you're, when you're thanking God and praising God for what he's done for you, you can't help but now focus on him. And the three things that she focuses on are first, his power. Secondly, his holiness. Thirdly, his mercy. And she says, all generations now will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. The mighty one has done great things for me. For me, she sees herself indeed as insignificant as we have just said, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Why? Because the mighty one is at work. God is working out his purpose. It doesn't matter who you are. It just matters that you have a heart for him. And he'll do the rest. But God is not to be thought of only in terms of power. She reflects also on his name, and she says, holy is his name. Holy is his name. His name is holy because he is holy. The name is the reflection of the person, is it not? A person is known by his name, right? We say, what's in a name? What's in a name? Everything's in a name. When people come to you and they mention so-and-so's name or so-and-such a name, immediately in your mind comes an image, right? right? That that name reflects. Some people, they mention their name and you say, oh, wonderful, wonderful. And fond things come to mind about that person. But then they mention somebody else's name. You go, ugh, yuck. I mean, that name conjures up things, doesn't it? God says, I will not, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, he says, I will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses my name. What's he saying? To profane my name is to profane me. 
My name is holy because I am holy. And in effect, Mary is saying, God, you are holy. Your name is holy. You're perfect in every way. There's no flaw, no shifting shadow. You're not capricious or whimsical. I can trust you. You're holy. And she moves from focusing on his holiness to his mercy. She says he is merciful in every generation. His mercy is certain for those who, what? Those who what? Fear him. Now, when she says the word fear, when that's used, does that mean that we should be shaking in our boots when we think about God? Close. <laughs> I mean, close. I mean, when you begin to understand who he is, you go, whoa, God. But more than that, it's a, it's a sense of an awesome reverence. You revere him. I mean, you know he's powerful. You know he's awesome but you revere him. Just as children revere their parents, they respect their parents, and they, they would think, I better not disobey. Not so much because I'll get punished or spanked. I better not disobey because I do not want to violate my parents' trust. Do we not aspire to that motivation as parents for our children? Don't we want our children to obey us because they reverence us rather than they just flat out fear us and they know that they'll get in trouble? Sure. Isn't it better to keep the law because the law is right and good and it ought to be kept rather than keeping it just out of fear because you get in trouble if you break it? Yeah, a lot of people think they repent when they've broken the law when in fact they're not really repenting, they're not experiencing a godly sorrow because they never had a reverence for that which was good in the first place. They're only sorry because they got caught and they're in trouble. They're not sorry because of who it is and what it is they have violated. They're only sorry because of the consequences to them. And so she speaks of God being merciful. Say this with me if you know and understand something of the reality of what I'm going about to say. Only if you know this. God, you have been merciful to me. God, you have been merciful to me. Is that powerful? That's what she says. She says, God, you've been merciful to me. And you make your mercy known to all generations, to people in every generation, to those who fear you. And you know how you know that you fear God? Because you obey him. You obey him. You obey him. Very simple. Now from a contemplation of God's goodness to her, she enlarges her view to a contemplation of his goodness and his power to others. She sings now of God's mercy as it is manifested in a complete reversal of human values. God is going to demonstrate his mercy. When God's kingdom comes, he turns the world upside down. I should say he turns the world right side up. It's upside down now. He turns it right side up. He puts things in their proper order. How many know that there's very little, if any, justice in this life? How many know that this world is rife with corruption and evil and sin? In spite of people's best intentions. You look around and you see tragedy every place. Now, I'm not, I'm not being a doomsayer. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you what's real. And she points to three things that, he, that God is going to reverse when his kingdom comes, and his kingdom comes through Jesus Christ. Look at these, thing, these three things with me. She says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Three mighty deeds are the things that God has performed. The first thing, she says, is that he scatters those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. 
Those who are lifted up, those who are exalted in their own view. Those who are a legend in their own minds. God scatters those people. And we see that. We see people who are, who are prideful or puffed up, who, who think they are God's gift to whatever. They're here one day and gone the next. They're blown away like the chaff. God scatters them. Those who exalt themselves, thinking themselves to be superior to others, just as he scattered Israel's enemies in ancient times. The great Assyrian Empire, one of the most powerful empires ever on the face of the earth. The Assyrian Empire, the time of Jonah, Jonah has to go confront them. What's left of the Assyrian Empire today is a few obscure Assyrian tribes in northern Iraq. That's all that's left. The Assyrian Empire has been scattered. The Babylonian Empire, mighty empire under Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest rulers the world has ever known. The time of Daniel, scattered. The Egyptian Empire, the times of Pharaoh and Moses. Powerful empire, ruled the known world. Scattered. Egypt today is a third-rate, third-rate, at best, a third-rate power. Scattered. She goes on and she says, in effect, that he lifts up who? The humble. Do you know that Christianity, think about this for a minute with me. Christianity is the death of pride. Get a hold of that. Christianity is the death of pride. You cannot become a Christian until first you're willing to humble yourself. Isn't that true? I mean, it's part of the reason why we give an altar call we ask people, we say, listen, if you have a felt need for God's forgiveness, if you know you're a sinner, if you know that God's guns of judgment are trained on you and yet you desire his forgiveness, that's why we encourage people to walk down the aisle, to come and make a public profession of their faith, to publicly be baptized. Because it requires that you humble yourself to do it. Am I right? We had a man last night in the service. It was after the service. He'd come for the first time. And his friends who brought him came and brought him and introduced him to me. We were chatting up here in the front. And uh, I asked him, I said, uh, I said, are, are you a Christian? He said, uh, well, no. I said, why in the world not? How come? What's the matter with you? Why aren't you a Christian? He said, well, I'm... So I'm an AA. I said, you're an AA? Wonderful. Why aren't you a Christian? He said, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working my way through AA. I said, AA ain't going to save you. AA, AA is going to help keep you sober, but it's not going to save you. I said, do you, do you, do you understand? Do you know? Do you, do you recognize that you are a sinner? He said, well, I've messed up pretty bad. That's as close as he could come to admitting he was a sinner. He said, I've messed up pretty bad. And I said, okay, good. Is there any reason? I mean, his friends are standing right here. They should have been doing this. I said, is there any reason at all right now why you can't ask Jesus to save you? Is there any good reason right now why you can't do that? And he looked at me and he said, well, not really. I said, do you want to ask Jesus to save you? What's he going to say? No. <laughs> I mean, he could. But he said, well, yeah, I guess. 
So I turned to his friends. I said, take him in the prayer room. Pray with him. Pray with him. Lead him to Jesus. And they did. And afterwards, I was watching for when they would come out of the prayer room because we were here late last night. And as he came out of the prayer room with his friends, and he was just... Set free, brother. Set free. New life. Why? Because he was willing to humble himself and acknowledge. What does Luke chapter 9, verse 23 say? What does, don't even look it up. Somebody quote it for me real quickly. Who knows Luke 9, 23? Come on, you guys should have this on, the, on your fingertips. Come on, 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 come on. Who's got it? Come on. Oh, good, all right. That's right. <laughs> he was here Friday night. Aww, that's not fair. He's honest. He's truthful. That's right. He admitted he was here on Friday night. That's credible, isn't it? Luke 9, 23. Remember, Christianity is the death of pride. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my student... I want you to go to the bookstore and I want you to get all the positive mental attitude books in the world <laughs> and I want you to study them. If you're going to be my disciple, I want you to get all the self-esteem books and I want you to read them. I want you to build up your self-esteem because you've got to have high self-esteem to follow me. No? Well, why is the church doing all that? Why is the church immersed in studies of self-esteem, trying to feel better about ourselves? Why is the church reading all the PMA books what does Jesus say? Deny yourself. You say, well, oh, I'm going to get that for you, darling. There you go. You're welcome. Why are we so immersed in trying to feel good about ourselves? Why are we so immersed in trying to feel good about ourselves? That is only focusing on what? Self. And as long as you're focused on self, are you going to then do the next thing he says, pick up your cross? No. No. You say, no, thank you. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want, I'm worried about what people think about me. See, when you're self-focused, you're always going to be concerned about what people think. And so you're not going to speak up at work. You're not going to speak up to your neighbors. You're not going to share the hope that's in you because you're so self-focused. Jesus says, look, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to learn to die to yourself. Because dying to yourself predisposes you now to, in fact, pick up the cross. Pick up the ministry. Pick up the thing that I'm calling you to do daily. Not just on Sundays. Daily. And follow me. It's a life. It's a whole new life. It's a whole new life. And she praises God. She says, when this salvation comes, God is going to renew the whole system of values of mankind. And the first thing he's going to do is going to scatter the prideful. Going to scatter them. He's going to bring down the mighty and lift up the humble. Bring down the rulers and all those who strive for power. He's done that in Eastern Europe, hasn't he? I mean, whew, man, he has taken away all of those people in Eastern Europe who've ruled as despots. Scattered them. And he lifts up who? The humble. He gives the humble positions of authority and power. Jesus says it in another way. He says, if you would be great, then you must be a servant. The path to greatness in God's kingdom, in God's economy of things, is through serving people. I mean, our constitution is based on that principle, isn't it? I mean, our government is based on the principle of for the people. Right? And yet, you would never know that from our big brother today, which is telling us what's good for us. Let the government tell us who should raise the children because the parents are too stupid to raise their children. People are too stupid to take care of themselves. So we're going to have a massive welfare program to keep people down. Unbelievable. 
But God comes to bring man back his dignity to renew man. If you want to be great, you got to be a servant. You got to be a servant. You got to know how to serve other people. And Jesus was the model. You got to learn how to get down and wash people's feet. You got to learn how to wash people's feet. Get down there and wash those stinky feet. Ugh, stinky feet. Wash the feet of people who are even going to betray you. And you know ahead of time they're going to betray you. Serve even those people. He brings about even an economic revolution. For she says and praises him that he has filled the hungry with good deeds, with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. In 1 John chapter 3, John says to the church, he says, if you have the world's goods and you see a brother in need and you don't do anything to meet that need and you have the resources to do it, how can the love of God be in you? How can you call yourself a Christian? And so Jesus, when he comes, he brings a whole new economy. An ungodly or a godless economy is an economy which people acquire, acquire, acquire just to have. But in a godly economy, people acquire and acquire and acquire not to have, but to give. And the more faithful we are with giving, God just looks down and says, man, I've got a willing heart there. I've got a, I've got a vessel I can pour increased resources through. I've got a trustworthy person. I can do mighty things through that person. And Mary praises him for the mighty deeds, the mighty things that he does. Lastly, she praises God because he remembers his people. Isn't it nice that God remembers us? The idea is he never forgets us. The idea is that he is true to his word, he is true to his promises, he is true to his purpose. So when you've embarked on a journey with the Lord and you're serving him and it gets difficult, it gets hard, and the enemy comes and blows in your ear and says, see, God's forgotten you. He's left you all out here stranded by yourself. You say, no, he hasn't. God knows exactly where I am. I can trust in him. In all things, in all things, he's working for my good. I can take comfort because I know that my God remembers me. No matter your circumstance, if you're a blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled child of God, he remembers you. He remembers you. Thank you, God, for remembering me. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you, God, for choosing me. Thank you for the great hope that you've given me. Thank you for your might and power in my life. Thank you, God, that you are holy. Thank you for your mercy to me. You have been merciful to me. Thank you, Lord, that you remember me. Now, some of you may be in a position this morning where you find yourself You've trusted in other things of life. Trusted in wealth, education, power, position. But you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. If you were to look honestly at your life, if you were to be intellectually honest with yourself, examine your life, you'd have to say, I am a sinner. I have messed up. I have broken the Ten Commandments. I have violated God's law. I am guilty. That's the reality for every single human being. Every single one of us have broken every single one of God's commands. Not just one, not just two, every single one. For we all are idolaters. 
We all worship something other than God. We've all dishonored our parents. We've all profaned God's name in one way or another. We've all been angry in our heart that we could have murdered somebody. We've all lusted in our heart so much as to have, in effect, had committed adultery. We've all lied. We've all talked about and gossiped about others. We have all, in our heart, broken God's law. We are all guilty. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's eternal punishment. Every human being, every human being is under God's judgment. The Bible says that God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants to save you from eternal damnation. He wants to pluck you as a brand out of the fire. And you can't qualify for it. You can't do enough good works to, to counterbalance the bad things. You can't do it. God doesn't grade on the curve. But he has made a way possible. And that way possible is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 1900 years ago, he died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. He died in your place and my place. He was the perfect, vicarious sacrifice. The victim who took my sin and your sin and my punishment and your punishment upon himself. And he's here today. He's here today and he's saying, come to me. Come to me. You who are weary and heavy burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll cleanse you from your sin. I'll relieve you from your guilt. Because from that guilt and that repressed guilt comes our fears and our anxieties, the things that plague us. He says, I'll give you a brand new start, a new chance, a second chance. Every single one of us in this room this morning can relate to the desire over something in our life in our past, if I could just have a second chance. God's going to give you that second chance this morning. I want to invite you, if you are ready to make a decision for Jesus, if you have a felt need for God's forgiveness, if you want a second chance, I want to invite you to this morning, get up out of your chair, walk down one of these aisles, come to the front of the auditorium here, meet with me, let me pray with you, introduce you to Jesus, who will come. My soul, my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Thank you.